In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. So God willing, today we're going to continue our series about the Holy Scriptures. Um, we, um, we spoke at the end last time about the New Testament manuscripts and how there were so many manuscripts and copies of originals that we have preserved of the New Testament, which adds to the reliab reliability and authenticity. Um, and we also had started speaking about the Old Testament. So the Old Testament manuscripts, there is not nearly as many available um, that currently exist from the Old Testament. But the way that, according to the Jewish tradition, the way that any copies of the Old Testament scriptures were made, they were made in a very special way. Keep in mind that these manuscripts were written on perishable material, so like maybe animal skin or um, other things that would over time deteriorate very quickly. So even though in our understanding, when you have a copy of something that's like closer to the original, then it's m the most accurate. However, here, because copies were being made, what they were doing is preserving the original in a, in a form that is surviving. It is not, it did not get destroyed like the original. But the way that they would do the copies would be in a, in a very special um, way. So I want to speak a little bit about this um, system. You know, they had this elaborate system that they would use to copy. Um, how is it that they copied? So it says what? A synagogue roll must be written on the skins of clean animals prepared by a Jew. These must be fastened together with strings taken from clean animals. Every skin or page must contain a certain number of columns equal throughout the entire codex. So like throughout the entire document, you have, to use, you have to have exactly the same number of columns. So that's one way of ensuring that nothing was lost or omitted or added. Okay? The length of each column must not extend less than 48 or more than 60 lines, and the breadth must consist of 30 letters. So every column has to be formatted in a certain way that's uniform and fixed so that, again, whenever you find a copy, you can say, is this following the appropriate format or not? And that gives you more credence to the idea that this is authentic and that nothing has been ripped out, nothing has been removed or changed. The whole copy must be first lined, and if three words were written without a line, it is worthless. The ink should be black and prepared according to a definite recipe. So we have to use a certain kind of ink. An authentic copy must be the exemplar from which the transcriber ought not to the least deviate. So they have to be very, very uh, 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 faithful to the original. No word or letter could be written from memory. The scribe could not have looked at the codex before him. The copyist must wash his whole body and sit in full Jewish dress while they are making the copies. He must not begin to write the name of God with a pen newly dipped in ink, and should a king address him while writing that name, he must take no notice of him. Okay. Um, also, um, if a certain number of errors were done while the transcriber is making the copy, the entire page would be destroyed and he would start again. Okay. So with these techniques, the scribes were able to make very reliable copies, which is why when you look at the, the, the differences between the copies, there is very little difference between the copies. Okay. 
There is a group called the Masorets. We have mentioned this in other series that we've done in the past, so I'm just going to briefly mention it. There was a group called the Masorets, which were a group of Jews uh, in the years 500 to, to 900 uh, AD. And they took the original Hebrew documents that were available, uh, written in a, in a certain style, and they modernized them. So they, they took them and they, for instance, the originals, like they didn't, they didn't have spaces between the words. Um, and they didn't have vowels, right? So, so to read them and understand the original Hebrew scripture is not easy, okay? Um, and so they, tr they wanted to make the Hebrew scripture easier for modern people to read and understand. So they went, they went through this process to kind of modernize and, 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 and update the, the Hebrew scripture so that people would be able to understand it. Um, the earliest Hebrew was written using only consonants. Correct pronunciation was assumed. This is, um, which was problematic because, um, you know, it could, be e it could be easy to misinterpret or misunderstand. The text that the Masoretes produced was called the Masoretic Text. And the Masoretic Text is what today all of the English versions of the Bible, most of the English versions of the Bible, like the New King James that we use, is based on this Masoretic Text. Okay? The Masoretic text is different than the Septuagint. If you remember, we spoke about how um, in, in, in a couple hundred years BC, there was a group of the rabbis that translated the Hebrew scripture to Greek. Okay? Later, that Greek was translated also to English. So you have a Septuagint version of the Bible. You have a Masoretic version of the Bible, which was done later, and it was done um, from this original Hebrew text that was kind of more difficult to interpret um, and understand. We see that the Septuagint is more accurate than the Masoretic, but the, the majority of the Bibles that we use today, the versions that we have, are from the Masoretic. The New King James Version that we use is from the Masoretic. Okay. Um, the extreme care devoted to the transcription of the manuscripts explains the disappearance of earlier copies. The reason that the earlier copies were not needed anymore is because, number one, they were easily corrupted, they were easily faded away, they were easily damaged, but the copies were so reliable that you didn't even need the original anymore because they used this very special type of copying technique. Um, when a manuscript had been copied with the exactitude prescribed by the Talmud and had been duly verified, it was accepted as authentic and regarded as being of equal value with any other copy. If all are equally correct, age gave no advantage to a manuscript. On the contrary, age was a positive disadvantage since a manuscript was liable to become defaced or damaged in the lapse of time. Okay? A damaged or imperfect copy was at once condemned as unfit for use. Thus, far from regarding an older copy of the scriptures as more valuable, the Jewish habit has been to prefer the newer as being the most perfect and free from damage. Okay? Therefore, the very absence of very old Hebrew manuscripts confirms the reliability of the copies that exist today once the rules and methods of the copyists are considered. So for the New Testament, we looked at there are many, many copies and, they, um, and, and, and manuscripts from very close to the time, whereas from the Old Testament, because of the way that they did the copying, the oldest versions were actually no longer needed because the, the newer versions were seen as being so accurate and supersede the older version. In 1947, a collection of ancient scrolls uh, was found accidentally by a Bedouin in a cave 
Irkherbet Qumran. You might have heard of Qumran on the northwest shore of the Dead Sea in Israel. These were referred to as the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, they have been hailed as the most important archaeological discovery of the 20th century. Um, the scrolls revealed that a commune of monastic farmers that lived in the valley from 150 uh, BC to 70 AD, and it's believed that when they saw the Romans invade the land, so the Romans invaded Israel uh, in 70 AD and destroyed the temple. So it's believed that when these farmers saw that the Romans were coming to invade their land, they put these leather scrolls, which had um, many parts of the Old Testament written on them. They put them in these jars and hid them in caves at Qumran on the cliffs northwest of the Dead Sea. And in 1947, these scrolls were discovered. The discovery provided incredible proof for the authenticity and reliability of the Old Testament manuscripts. One of the complete books found in Qumran Cave 1 were two copies of the Book of Isaiah. These books were thousands of years older than the oldest dated manuscripts previously known. Nevertheless, they proved to be word for word identical to the standard Hebrew Bible in more than 95% of the text. So you imagine the, 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 the oldest documents that we had for the book of Isaiah. Then we found something that was thousands of years older and it matched the copy 95% of the text. The 5% variation consisted chiefly of obvious slips of pen and variations in spelling. They do not affect the message of the revelation, right? So again, it gives credence to this reliability, authenticity of the scriptures. One other way that we find that the scriptures are authentic is by looking at the prophecies. As we said in the first talk in this series, the Bible was written over a period of 1,600 years by 40 different authors, and it would be impossible for some author to, you know, cook up a scheme with someone who lived thousands of years after him to falsify or fabricate prophecy, okay? It wasn't, it wasn't, this wasn't done by one person where it's easy for them to, you know, write some things and then pretend as though these things have come to pass. This was written over a very, very long period of time. So when you read prophecies in the Old Testament and then you find that they are fulfilled in the New Testament, then there is a lot, there's corroborating evidence, right? So, so it shows that what it, whatever was written actually was fulfilled. What are some examples of this? So in the Old Testament, there's more than 300 prophecies about the Messiah, the anointed one, Christ, right? Christ is, means anointed one in Greek, and Messiah means anointed one in Hebrew. So, so the, the prophecies about the Lord Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Um, and one famous example of this is in Psalm 22, where King David is describing the crucifixion of the Lord almost a thousand years before it happened, okay? So, for instance, in, in Psalm 22, verse 1, this is when we read, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Okay? And this was, these are the same words that were uttered by the Lord Jesus Christ when he was on the cross. In Matthew 27, it says, And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Okay? Um, in verses 7 and 8, All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. 
Okay, this is what's written by King David. Then in Matthew 27, 43, it says um, the people are mocking Christ. Okay, saying he trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. So the people, when they are mocking Christ on the cross and telling him, if you are the son of God, come down from the cross. If you are the son of God, God will deliver you. This is the exact same thing that was said again in Psalm 22 um, much, much earlier. Verse 16, it says, For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Okay, and Of course, we know um, in Luke 23, verse 33, it says, When they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and one on the left. So again, he is surrounded by the wicked. He's surrounded by criminals. And we, of course, we know that they pierced the hands and the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Again, this is a fulfillment of the prophecy. In, in Psalm twenty-two, eighteen, it says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Again, we know that this is what happened to Christ. Matthew 23, it says, And they divided his garments and cast lots. Right? The thing about this as well is that these actions were taken by the Romans. Right? Maybe for the first one I said when the Lord is saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you could imagine that there is a man and he is pretending that he is the Messiah and he is pretending like he is the fulfillment of prophecies. And so he goes back to the Hebrew scripture and says, oh, well, let me just take some of these quotes and some of these things and say them so it will appear like I am the fulfillment of the prophecies. Okay, But what's happening here is that these people who are Romans, these people are not Hebrews. They are not even aware of these prophecies. They couldn't care less about these prophecies. It had nothing to do with this, right? And so when, when the Romans come to Christ and they divided his garments and cast lots and that this is a fulfillment of prophecy, again, how, how could this have been fabricated? Like, how could that be done? They're not, they're not trying to fulfill prophecy, right? They, they, don't have any, they don't have any reason to do that, right? That is actually what happened, just what they did. There's another very beautiful passage that we read as one of the prophecies of, uh, of Good Friday in, in the Holy Bascha. Um, and this is in Wisdom of the Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 2. Um, and when you read it, it's a prophecy of Christ. It's really amazing. Okay, so I'm going to read it for you. It says, Therefore, let us encircle the just, because he is useless to us, and he is against our works. And he reproaches us with our legal offenses and makes known to us the sins of our way of life. He promises that he has the knowledge of God and he calls himself the son of God. He was made among us to expose our very thoughts. He is grievous for us even to behold, for his life is unlike other men's lives and immutable are his ways. It is as if we are considered by him to be insignificant and he abstains from our ways as from filth. He prefers the newly justified, and he glories that he has God for his father. Let us see, then, if his words are true, and let us test what will happen to him, and then we will know what, is, what his end will be. For if he is the true son of God, he will receive him and deliver him from the hands of his adversaries. Let us examine him and insult and torture with insult and torture, that we may know his reverence and try his patience. Let us condemn him to a most shameful death, for according to his own words, God will care for him. 
These things they thought, and they were mistaken, for their own malice blinded them, and they were ignorant of the mysteries of God. They neither hoped for the reward of justice, nor judged the value of holy souls. You see in this prophecy so much language that is very, very specific, right? Saying this man claimed to be the son of God, that he had uh, God as his father, that he's going to be tortured and insulted and mocked, uh, that, that he sees that the actions of the people around him are as filth, that they are insignificant um, to him, that he is different from them. So you see, this prophecy is very, very clear, speaking about the events of Christ on the cross and, 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 and who he is compared to the rest of the people. Again, when you, and this is just very, very few of the prophecies that exist in the Old Testament that point to the Lord Jesus Christ, whether it be to his words, to his actions, or to other people um, that treated him a certain way, um, like we said, casting uh, lots for his clothes and so on. There's also other prophecies that are not messianic, Right, the messianic prophecies are prophecies that um, refer to Christ. There are all other prophecies as well that refer to other things. A very famous prophecy is actually a prophecy of the Coptic Church, in Isaiah chapter 19, it says, "In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt, and a pillar to the Lord at its border, and it will be for a sign and for a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt." For they will cry to the Lord because of the oppressors, and he will send them a savior and a mighty one, and he will deliver them. Then the Lord will be known to Egypt, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day, and will make sacrifice and offering. Yes, they will make a vow to the Lord and perform it. So all throughout the Old Testament, um, the Egyptians were wicked. They were evil people. There was nothing good that came out of the Egyptians in the Old Testament. Every time that the Egyptians were mentioned, they were a pagan people, they were uh, a violent people, they were um, against God. Actually, every time the Jews would try to go and seek the assistance of the Egyptians in the Old Testament, God rebuked them for it. Okay? But here he is saying that there will be a time in the future okay, where the Egyptians will know the Lord, and there will be an altar to the Lord in the land of Egypt. The significance of that is what? Where were the altars? Where was the altar of the, of, of the Jews? In Jerusalem. That was the only altar. That was the only place that you could go and you could offer sacrifices was in that altar, right? So you could not have an altar in Egypt. You could not have a Jewish altar, right, in Egypt or anywhere else. So the fact that saying that there will be an altar in the land of Egypt means is referring to, is refer referring to the altar of the New Testament, right? So to say that there is an altar to the Lord in the New Testament is to say that there is a church in the New Testament in the land of Egypt. So this prophecy is fulfilled in the coming of St. Mark to Egypt, establishing the church, establishing the altar, and, and now that the church of Alexandria that exists in Egypt is a fulfillment of this prophecy. Okay, which is something that we obviously we clearly see and we know. There's also other evidence, um, extra-biblical evidence, meaning evidence from outside the Bible, from people who are non-Christians, right? And this is important as well, because when you have someone who's a Christian, you might accuse them of being biased and presenting information that, that um, prefers or, or interprets the Scripture in such a way to prove its 
uh, its veracity pr to prove that it's true. Um, but when you have someone who is a non-Christian come and say things that corroborate what the Bible says, then you have to look at it. You're like, okay, well, this is th this person has no interest in lying and saying that this is this is what's there, right? So, one of the famous uh, Jewish historians, his name is Josephus. Might have heard of him. Um, he he lived um, in the first century. Okay, so very close to the time of Christ, and this is what he says. Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man. For he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men amongst us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him. For he appeared to them alive again the third day. As the divine prophets had foretold, these men and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him and the tribe of Christians so named from him are not extinct at this day. So he's speaking about the events that we all believe and we all read about in the New Testament, the existence of the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the idea that, that, that he was condemned to the cross, he was crucified, that he rose again on the third day, even mentions Pilate, you know, for, for a long time, you know, modern biblical scholars try to say that there, there never existed such a person called Pontius Pilate because the character that is depicted in the Bible, they say like the way he acts is not typical of a Roman prefect of why, why he would do this and that it was all fabricated. But when you have evidence from the outside, there's also archaeological evidence that mentions Pilate as well. But you have evidence from the outside of the Bible, non-Christian sources that are again corroborating what it is that we read it adds even more authority to the works of the Bible. There's also biblical statements that support different scientific principles prior to these principles being discovered. Now, I want to emphasize that the Bible is not a science book, nor does it try to describe things in science, nor does it try to be scientific or detailed or you know, exhaustive or comprehensive when it mentions anything scientifically. Right? It is not. It is not mentioned to teach science, but there are certain things that, uh, when you read it, you realize that it's mentioning something that science only discovered many, many years after. Right? And you look back and you read. It's like, well, that's kind of describing the reality, but we never, as a as a as a human race, we never really um, realized that until much later. So I'm going to read some statements um, so you can kind of see what I'm talking about. So there are some biblical statements consistent with astronomy. In, Jer in Jeremiah chapter 32, 33, it says, As the host of heaven cannot be numbered, nor the sand of the sea measured, so will I multiply the descendants of David my servant and the Levites who ministered to me. Why is that a significant statement? Why do you think that is a significant statement? For the Bible to say, The host of heaven cannot be numbered, nor the sand of the sea measured. And he's... he's He's, he's saying this is this is like a, an analogy to the number of descendants um, that 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 you will have saying about King David. What do you think? So. When you think about the number of sand on the seashore. 
and then you look at you look in the sky with your naked eye are those two things comparable in number but how many how many how many particles of sand are there on one beach when you compare it to the number of stars that you can see with your eye there's a lot more sand you can only see about 1,000 to 3,000 stars in the night sky with your naked eye without a telescope. And obviously telescopes didn't exist at the time. So for God to say, and, and for Jeremiah to prophesy, to equate that the multitude of, of the descendants is going to be like the sand of the seashore and the stars of the sky, means that the, the, the number of the stars is huge. You know, just like the number of the sand on the seashore is huge. But no human being could know how many stars that there were. Of course, now, like, the universe is, like, unbelievable to fathom the number of stars that exist. But at the time, no one could know that, right? Only God is revealing that, okay? In Job 26, verse 7, he says, He stretches out the north over empty space. He hangs the earth on nothing. Why is that important? Again, we now know the Earth is a sphere that floats in space and seems kind of we take that for granted. But that's not how the ancient people understood. You know, the Greeks believed that there was a giant god named as Titan or, or Atlas, depending on the Greek or Roman mythology, and he was carrying the Earth on his back. That's how they explained the Earth. So that's what many people believed. The idea that the earth is just floating there in empty space, again, it's something that was discovered by modern man that ancient people did not understand or believe. But the Bible is mentioning it. He stretches out the north over empty space. He hangs the earth on nothing. The earth is floating on nothing. There is nothing there, right? Biology. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Again, maybe we take for granted the idea that blood is important for life, but human beings did not always believe this. The person who discovered that blood was necessary for life and was important for life was a man by the name of William Harvey, who lived in 1616. Right? Prior to this, it was not believed the people didn't understand what blood was for. Right? They didn't they didn't they didn't acknowledge that blood was necessary for life. So for the Bible to speak about how the blood is necessary for life, right? It's not a it's not a statement that we can just take for granted. Right? Maybe for all of us like yeah, obviously blood is important. But again, the people didn't believe that a long time ago. In Job 36, it says for he draws up drops of water which distill as rain from the mist, which the clouds drop down and pour abundantly on man. Indeed, can anyone understand the spreading of clouds, the thunder from his canopy? What does this describe? It describes evaporation, cloud formation, cloud movement, condensation with electrical charges, like with lightning, and precipitation. This is called the hydrological cycle. Human beings didn't understand this hydrological cycle. They didn't understand the process of, you know, water falling from the clouds, you know, and then moving from place to place and evaporating again, and it goes back and forth. People didn't know that. At the in the ancient world, people believed that water came out of like um, 
like like large um what's the word like like la- la- large volumes of water will come up out of the earth right so this was discovered this hydrological cycle was discovered in the 17th century right but here the bible is referring to it much much earlier also king king solomon in ecclesiastes he says all the rivers run into the sea yet the sea is not full to the place from where from which the rivers come there they return again you know because the water evaporates from the sea turns into clouds goes and rains on the land and then goes back into the rivers into the sea again this is again the movement of water this is not something that people understood at the time so there's there are many states and again there's many more than this but i just wanted to pick a few to give you a flavor right that even the scripture when it's not intending to communicate scientific principles uh, just in passing there will be statements of certain things that when you look at it you say modern science didn't even believe this or acknowledge this until much much later which again gives you some um you know some understanding of the divinity behind these words right the divinity like that god is speaking with a divine knowledge it is not just uh, human beings speaking of what they understand because human beings did not yet know these things this is a good stopping point. Have any comments or questions before we conclude? Okay, let's pray. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. We ask, O Lord, for your blessing. We ask, O God, that you help us to understand how vital and important your holy scriptures are in our life, to understand your words, to learn from them, to be guided by them, to be comforted by them, to know you, O Lord, and to seek you, O Lord, with all our hearts. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, the communion, the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace. The peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen.